So if I were to ask you to name for me the top five places in the world where Christianity is growing more rapidly than anywhere else, could you? Over the last decade, I think many of us have kind of recognized that the United States, a nation I think generally known around the globe as Christian, is really no longer a place where Christianity continues to thrive. In fact, as we pointed out in previous podcasts, statistics in the United States paint a picture of Christianity in this nation as being somewhat in a freefall state of decline, despite recent rulings from the Supreme Court, which seem favorable to a Christian worldview. Attendance at churches across the United States, well, I think you know this, it's reached an all-time low. So if this is true and numbers don't lie, then where in the world is Christianity growing? Because it is, and it's growing rapidly. So can you name them, the top five? In order, here they are. Let's see how you did. Uh, number one, Nepal. Nepal, generally known as a Hindu nation. Uh, it has an annual aggregate growth rate related to Christianity of almost 11%. Wow. Number two, China. That's right, China. Typically known as what? Atheistic, non-religious. But Christianity there is growing at a rate of 10.86%. You find me a church in the United States that, that's got a 10.86% growth rate on an annual basis. How about this one? Number three. The United Arab Emirates, it's Muslim territory, but Christianity is alive and well in this region, growing at a rate of 9.34%. Number four, this one to me is stunning. Ready for this? Number four, Saudi Arabia. It's dangerous, and I, and I really, I mean that literally, to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia. Yet it's thriving there. Christianity is growing with an annual growth rate of 9.27%. And then number five, Qatar, once again, Muslim enclave, yet the numbers tell a story. Christianity growing at a rate of 7.81% annually in Qatar. So, so let me ask you, um, as you kind of think through those top five, how, how did you do? I've tried this question out over the last several weeks, and I'm going to tell you that most of the people that I've asked were way off in recognizing where in the world Christianity is growing. Not only that, but for the most part, uh, mention of where Christianity is growing elicited a question. Here's the question. People ask this a number of times. So tell me this, how is it even possible that Christianity is growing in places where being a Christian often comes with a price tag, and that price tag is persecution? In today's podcast, I wanna complete our look at the topic of persecution. Over the last several weeks, if you've been with us, we've been looking at what I call the three P's of persecution. We've looked at, number one, perpetration. So the question is, where does persecution come from? If you haven't listened to that podcast, I want to encourage you to. It's, it's actually a tough question. When persecution happens, most often we as Christians want to know, well, God, why don't you stop it? Why, why don't you shut it down? But when you study the scriptures, it's clear that he does not. In fact, often he uses persecution toward kingdom good. Then P number two was purpose. Last week we got into this with a little bit of depth. I think that inarguably one can say that that persecution does have purpose. We don't like it. We don't want it, but it does have purpose. Today I want to take on the third P. Talk about the power 
of persecution. Here, and here's why. Back to that list of places where Christianity is growing most rapidly. I want to ask the question, is it possible that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is actually able to cause growth through persecution? I think you have to ask the question. When you look at places where Christianity is thriving, persecution is present. And so is growth. So do the two, persecution and growth, relate? Is there a positive correlation between the two? One of the things that's kind of gotten me thinking about the relationship of persecution and growth has been actually some readings I've been doing in the ancient writings of Tertullian. I don't know how familiar that name is to you, but if you don't know it, I really want to encourage you to become more familiar with in particular, his earliest writings. I think they're helpful for the time that we're living in. Tertullian, we know, was a Christian living in Carthage, a northern province of Rome located in Africa. By the way, today, ancient Carthage is modern-day Tunisia. It's located between Libya and Algeria. And if you take a look at it uh, on the ground or on a map, it doesn't look like much. But at the time of Tertullian, this ancient African city rivaled, literally rivaled the city of Rome in terms of its economic influence. Now, for me, here's what makes Tertullian's writings so relevant. Tertullian lived through the persecution of Christians ordered by then emperor, we're about 197 AD, Septimius Severus. It's not as well known as Nero or Domitian. In fact, historically, he follows both. But he's equally as deadly. When you study Tertullian's writings during this period of persecution, again, 197 AD, two things stand out. Uh, first is a piece that he wrote titled Ad Martyrus, in which he's seeking to prepare Christians for impending persecution, given the edict of Severus, establishing laws that made many of the practices of churches illicit, or we'd say today, illegal. So as Tertullian speaks into the church, he's aware of the temptation the church has to acquiesce to Roman rule. Speaking into the tension of his day, Tertullian urges Christians, do not back down one iota from your faith or your practices, but enter persecution aware that God will be your strength. As I read through Ad Martyrus, I'm kind of struck by the relationship, again, between persecution and growth. It stands out. Now, again, I'm going to use the term growth here more qualitatively than quantitatively, but listen to these words, the words Tertullian writes. Again, this is from uh, his, his book, Ad Martyrus. He writes, quote, Ye are about to undergo a good fight wherein the president, president is the living God, the trainer, the Holy Spirit, the crown, eternity, the prize of angelic being, the citizenship of heavens, the glory forever and ever. Wherefore, your master, Christ Jesus, who hath given you the unction of the Spirit and hath brought you forth unto this wrestling ground, hath willed before the day of the contest to set you apart from a free manner of living unto a severer training. Why? That your powers might be strengthened within you. 
Four, the wrestlers also are set apart for a stricter discipline that they may have time for building up their strength. Now, I don't know about you. I, I find those words astounding. Think about this. What Tertullian is saying to the Christians of his time is God put you here for this time and this fight. He put you here to be his voice, even to those who will imprison you and take your lives. So enter persecution knowing that God will be your strength. He will grow you. I love those words, but he doesn't stop there. Tertullian also addresses the Roman rulers of his time, those who governed the Carthaginian provinces. In a work titled Apologeticus, again, 197 AD, Tertullian speaks not only to the issue of qualitative growth, but also to the issue of quantitative growth. Here's what he writes. I want you to listen to these words. Uh, They've kind of become uh, infamed. Here they are, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, end quote. I want you to get that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So Tertullian is speaking to the governors of Carthage. What he's saying is, listen, if it's your goal to get rid of Christians and your tools are laws and persecution, i.e. putting Christians to death, you might want to reconsider because your actions are most likely to do the opposite. The more Christians you kill, The more their seed is planted, the more their seed is planted, the greater will be their growth. I love the, by the way, Alexander Souter's translation of Tertullian here. He he translates Tertullian's message to the rulers of his day this way, quote, the more we are mown down by you, the faster we will grow for the blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. In other words, Tertullian equates persecution with growth. And you know what? History, not not in every case, but in many, seems to support the correlation between persecution and growth. I want you to think through just a little bit of history with me. I think many of us will remember the persecution of Christians under Lenin and Stalin in Russia, 1917 to 1938. So between 1917 and 1935, over 130,000 Orthodox priests were arrested, 95,000 of them were shot to death by execution squads. More than 8,000 were murdered just in the initial skirmishes over church treasures. Between 1937 and 1938, bloody purges resulted in the arrest of 168,300 Russian Orthodox clergymen. At least 100,000 of those arrested were shot. You want to talk about Tertullian's blood is seed? Communist Russia planted a lot of seed. So, so let's ask the question. What was the result? I'm going to give you a word. The word is growth. I want you to listen to what Sarah Zilstra, writing for the Gospel Coalition, says. She writes, quote, The 20th century was hard on Christians in Russia. Under Vladimir Lenin, then Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, and finally Leonid Brezhnev, Christians were beaten, imprisoned, and killed in an attempt to eliminate all organized religion, and it almost worked. Under the Soviets, the number of Russian evangelicals dropped to 25% of its pre-1917 size. That's according to the Center for Study of Global Christianity. And then, in the early 90s, a tumble of countries declared independence. The Berlin Wall hit the pavement. 
and Soviet Union was gone. As the Russian Federation sorted itself out, religious repression eased. Now, listen to these numbers. From 1991 to 2008, the number of religiously unaffiliated people who said, I, I don't go to a church, that number plummeted from 61% to 18%, while those willing to say that they were actually now Christian, Russian Orthodox, shot from 31% to 72% and has stayed there. Growth. Then there's communist China. I'm not sure that people today are as familiar with the history of China as we really should be. And I say this especially in connection with China's relationship to Christianity. So let me ask you this. Do, do you remember how many Christians Mao Zedong killed during his reign over China? By the way, I'm going to put this in perspective. Mao Zedong was still ruling when I graduated from high school, just as a point of reference. This is within our lifetime. So here, here was his impact. Writing for the Washington Post, Ilya Soman describes it this way, quote, who is the biggest mass murderer in the history of the world? Most people probably assume the answer is Adolf Hitler, architect of the Holocaust. Others might guess Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, who may indeed have managed to kill more innocent than Hitler did, but both Hitler and Stalin were outdone by Mao Zedong. From 1958 to 1962, his great leap forward policy led to the deaths, are you ready for this, of up to 45 million people, easily making it the biggest episode of mass murder ever recorded. Think about that number again, 45 million Christians killed. So again, let me ask you a question. Was he able to kill Christianity? So I think by now, you know the answer. No, he was not. In fact, it's reported that by the year 2010, 34 short years after Mao Zedong, some 58 million Christians were reported active in China, 58 million. And remember our list today, China is the second fastest growing place on the globe when it comes to Christianity. I'll just use my word again. The word is growth. So what does this have to do with Daniel? I want you to remember we're in the eighth chapter of Daniel's story. And in this chapter, Daniel's been given a dream that's descriptive of a swath of history, moving from the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians to the overthrow of the Babylonians by the Persians, and finally their overthrow by the, the Greece and Romans. During much of the period that's being foretold to Daniel, Israel, God's people will endure persecution, at times severe. Yet, as you pull up above the persecution that's to come, there's actually a message inherent within the dream given to Daniel. Throughout the periods of persecution to come, God's kingdom, far from being extinguished, will continue to grow. What Daniel calls people to trust is the presence and the promise of a God who's bigger than the pain and horrors that will come. And I think it's this message today that I think is relevant for the time that we the church, and the West are facing today. As we close out our look at, at persecution through the narrative of Daniel, I really want to just lift up three questions. Here they are. Question one, what lessons from history can we learn that might be helpful as we enter into a time of increased persecution in the Christian West? I'm going to be sensitive to the fact that the level of persecution happening in the West is nowhere near 
what it is in parts of our globe where daily lives are being taken because of a confession of faith. And I recognize that. At the same time, I don't think there's much debate, but that we're entering into a time of persecution today. It, it will, I believe, only intensify. So the question is, what can we learn from the past? Well, can, what can we learn, for instance, from the, the church in Germany, who at the outset of Hitler's reign acquiesced to his political agenda rather than standing firm on what it taught and confessed? This over against Chinese Christians who, though they died at the hand of Mao Zedong, refused to give ground on what they believed. And today, China, Christianity is growing. I think we can learn a lot from history, and we need to. As culture more and more demands that the church either go along with its narrative or be, in some respects, punished, we can learn a lot from Christians that have gone before us. So think about this with me. If you had to make a list of the top three lessons for the church today, based on what we know historically from the past, what would your lessons be? That's question number one. Question number two. I've done a lot of thinking about this second question. How does persecution, as it intensifies in the West, change the narrative of the church relative to what it means to invite people into its fellowship? Let that sink in again. How does persecution change the narrative of the church relative to what it means to invite people into our fellowship? I want to observe this, that for most of my lifetime, I've grown up at a time where to invite someone into membership or fellowship, as we would call it, was to invite someone to an organization that maintained a favored status within the culture. In other words, being part of the church was actually accompanied by the respect of most people. That's changed. Today, when I invite someone into church, what I recognize is the fact that I'm inviting someone into an organization that in many respects is disdained by a majority in culture. Doesn't that change the narrative associated then with inviting someone into fellowship? In fact, does it not make it more biblical? Think about this. When Jesus invited people into fellowship, notice what he did not say. He did not say, hey, welcome into church membership. You're going to love our church. We got a coffee bar. We offer new members free lattes for their first year in our bookstore. We'll give you a free logo wear shirt that you can proudly wear around town. You're going to love it here. No. No. What did Jesus say? He said, listen, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. It's going to be hard and follow me. Or any seed in order to grow must first die. Jesus literally told people to follow me means death. I'm telling you that that's a way different narrative than the one I grew up with. So think about this. As persecution enters the picture in the West, how does our welcome narrative shift? Question number three, after thinking about persecution over these last several weeks, is there some way that you might become involved in walking with those who are being persecuted in horrendous ways across our globe? In my own faith journey, I I actually mourn the reality that I did not become aware of the level of persecution happening in our world really for some years after entering the ministry. I, I knew it. I knew there was persecution, but I had no idea of the numbers or the realities associated with what people have actually endured for centuries. For me, it was an organization that we referred to in an earlier podcast, Voice of the Martyrs, that helped me awaken to what's happening on a global scale 
to fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, here's where I want to challenge you. What, what might it mean for you to go online and connect with an organization like Voice of the Martyrs? They have a wealth of resources, including devotionals that will allow you to pray in specific ways for the persecuted. If you want to, you can support the work that they're doing. I'm just asking because I, I really do believe that something good happens when we become engaged and involved then the persecution are not just shadowy figures out there somewhere. Rather, they're real people who remind us of how much we need each other in our faith journey through this world. So I want to challenge you to answer that question for yourself. What would it mean for you to become engaged in some sort of support for those who face persecution today? Well, that's all for today. I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. I hope it's helpful for you in your journey. I'll be lifting you up in my prayers this week. I I very much need your prayers and I'm thankful for them. So until next time, have a God-sized week.